a couple weeks back, we asked this question, you know, what is the Bible? Uh, And part of our answer there was that it's a story. It's a story of how God made a good world and we broke it. Um, But God is committed to saving it and committed to saving us. Uh, When everything falls apart, God steps in. He declares war against sin and death and the devil. Uh, He goes to war against evil, chaos, and injustice. Um, That war is going to come to an end, we see tonight. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces landed on the beaches uh, of Normandy. The D-Day invasion essentially won the war. The Nazis would never recover from this attack. But if you know your history, the war didn't end in Europe uh, until May 8, 1945. Between the war's decisive victory on D-Day and evil's final surrender on VE Day, there were still many battles to be fought. And in very much the same way, we are living in an in-between time, between a D-Day and a VE Day between Christ's first coming and Christ's return. The first time that God invaded planet Earth, he came in weakness. He came as a baby. He came as one of us. He was born in obscurity. He was born in poverty. And he grew up. He became a man. And as a man, he did amazing things. He made the blind see. He made the deaf hear. He made crippled walk. He made the leper clean. He made storms sit down, and he made the dead to rise. But that's not all. He preached good news to the poor and to the downhearted. He announced that he had come from heaven to bring a little bit of heaven here on earth. And he went to a lot of parties. He feasted with those on the left and the right with Pharisees as well as tax collectors and prostitutes. He was called a friend of sinners. But that's not all. This miracle-working, prophecy-fulfilling, party-going God washed feet. He bore a cross. He took the weight of our sins upon his shoulders, and he took the punishment that our sins deserve. But that's not all. Because on the third day he rose again. Our debts having been paid in full, nothing to be added to them, nothing to be taken away. And Jesus was vindicated because death cannot contain the innocent one. Y'all, this was God's D-Day invasion of planet Earth. When the Son of God comes to Earth in the person of Jesus, God hits the forces of evil so hard that they will never recover. Victory is assured, but the war isn't over yet. What's this calling on me? I'll put this over here. The war isn't over yet. There are still many battles to be fought between D-Day and V-E-Day, aren't there? Battles for truth. In the public square. Battles for racial justice and equality. Battles for the protection of all life. From the womb to the tomb. For all peoples. Of all races. Of all genders. Of all ethnicities. Of all ages. All around the globe. 
There's battles to be fought, not just for the protection of human life, but also plant and animal life, including, of course, the water, air, and earth we all depend upon for our survival. There are battles to end poverty, world hunger, war itself. And then there are, of course, the battles to be fought that hit really close to home. Battles against loneliness, addiction, depression, anxiety, selfishness, laziness, greed, against envy and jealousy, idolatry, strife, all these forces that seek to destroy relationships, destroy our communities, destroy the world, destroy our very own lives. Many battles to be fought. You know, in case you hadn't noticed, there's a lot of fighting going on, a lot of war, a lot of struggle, and you and I are in the thick of it. We are caught between a D-Day and a V-E day. But here, at the end of the Bible, we see that this war is going to come to an end. It will not always be so. The war will come to an end. God is going to return, the Bible says. And when he does, he's not going to come in obscurity. He is not going to come in weakness. He is going to come back in strength. The earth will shake. The sky will be peeled away like a scroll, like a curtain, and everything and everyone will be exposed, will be laid low, will be brought to its knees. The war will end. Evil and injustice, death and the devil, sin and suffering, it will all come to a decisive end. You see this described in some detail in Revelation 6. It's popularly known as Judgment Day, but we could just as well call it Justice Day. It's the same word, right? It's the day that God brings justice, right, to our earth. It is the day when everything is exposed, right, for what it is. It is the day when God makes everything wrong, right. But we have this question in chapter 6, verse 17, the very end of that chapter. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? We hear in this question an echo of Psalm 130, verse 3, which where the psalmist asks, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Revelation 7, 9 to 10, answers this question. Listen. The question is, who can stand? Right? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing right, before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When the war comes to a decisive end, the people who will stand on God's day of judgment are people from all over the globe, verse 9, and people from all over the globe who have washed their robes white, and the blood of the Lamb. That's who's going to stand. People from all over the globe who've washed their robes white uh, and the blood of the Lamb. What we see 
here is that salvation is inclusive and exclusive at the same time. As you peer uh, to the end of time, we see a great multitude, which nobody can number. It's so large. And it includes people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they're standing before the throne. You don't have to have a certain skin color to make it, a certain age, a certain job, a certain GPA. You don't need to speak a certain language or have a certain skill or political persuasion. Right? The people who will stand on that day are people who are like you and look just like you, but they're also people who are really not like you in lots of other ways too. It is a multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual community Right, that gets to stand before the throne right, for all of time, right, who inherits heaven. That's a way of putting it. Right? But the one thing that this really diverse group of people has in common, this really inclusive, diverse community, what it, they all have in common is this one thing. They've all washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what does that mean? Right, that's kind of a weird way of talking. Right? This is metaphorical language, right, that harkens us back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, you have uh, in the second, it's the second book of the Bible. It goes Genesis, then Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we are told how God's people, the Israelites, they lived as slaves in Egypt. Right? They were oppressed. They were crying out uh, for their freedom. And God heard their cries. And he saw their pain and he intervenes. He sends nine plagues, right, to uh, sort of show the, the Egyptians how, um, what's the word, impotent that their gods were to stop him, that he was the most powerful one, uh, to, to, to put pressure on the Egyptians to let God's people go, right? Maybe you've heard this story before. But the tenth plague was different from the other nine that preceded it. Because for the tenth plague, God actually shows up in judgment. And this is a problem for the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. Because when God shows up in judgment, right, we're all at risk. We're all in danger. Because God is a just judge who hates sin. He cannot tolerate it. And that is a problem because every single one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has sin in, in, in our lives. This is true of the Egyptian and the Hebrew, the Gentile, the Jew, like everyone in this room, right, is a sinner. We all fail to image God as we ought. None of us loves God with our whole heart, right? None of us loves our neighbor as ourselves. We all miss the mark. And it's not just that we fail to keep God's laws. We fail to keep the laws that we make up ourselves. Rules like be a good person and don't lie and don't ghost people and don't be a flake and treat other people the way you want to be treated. Like we don't even keep those rules. Those aren't rules in the Bible. Those are just rules we make up. We can't even keep our own rules, right? And the consequences of our law breaking, the consequences of our failure to love it adds up, and it has painful consequences. And you can see those on the nightly news. You can see that in your, uh, the breakdown in the relationships that maybe you have in your dorm room or in your hall. 
You can feel it in your own soul. The good news is this. God says to people who fail, he says to people who miss the mark, he says to people who rebel even, there is a way for you to withstand judgment. I'm giving you a way out. And he says here in the book of Exodus, I want you to take an innocent lamb, a lamb without stain or blemish, and kill it. And take its blood and put it on your doorposts so that when I show up in judgment, I will see the blood and I will know an innocent died in your stead and I will pass over you and you can go free. You can escape judgment, you can escape bondage and you can enter into freedom. It's called Passover. Bloody lamb. Well, did you know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating a Passover meal? That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took a cup full of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And what he is doing in that moment is he is redefining the Passover meal. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the ultimate Passover lamb, the innocent one, without stain, without blemish, who is going to die so that you can go free, so that you can withstand judgment. Behold, John the Baptist said, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For everyone. See, salvation is inclusive. It includes, it, inco- it includes the world and everyone in it. But it's exclusive because it's only available through this one, through this Jesus, through this Passover lamb. This kind of gets us to the question of heaven and hell. I'll sometimes get the question, if God is love, why does hell exist? Like, Why isn't everyone saved? Well, God is love, right? Which is why God hates sin, right? God is love, which is why he hates evil. If he didn't hate evil, he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be loving. He, He hates those things. God hates the cancer that is eating the insides out of the ones that he loves. He hates sin. God is love, which is why God sends his son to planet Earth. To live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. God hates hell. And that is why he experiences it on the cross. So you and I don't have to. Think about that. God hates hell so much that he experiences it himself. So you don't have to. But you all have a choice to make. Will you receive the salvation that God has won for you in Jesus, or will you reject it? Will you reject him? Will you be for God or against God? Will you say, leave me alone? Right? I don't want your help. I don't need your charity. I can save myself. 
You know, that's kind of what hell is. Hell is the decision, leave me alone. I don't want your help being made forever. Sin is the human being saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God's finally saying to the human, you can have your wish. I'll give you what you want. Hell is God's leaving the person to him or herself as that individual has chosen. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing. Leave me alone. Don't bother me. I want to do things my own way, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth because hell had already broken in two and brought it here before him. Right? Planet earth in a way had become enemy occupied territory. Jesus, heaven and hell are future realities and Jesus is coming to say, I want to bring a little glimpse, a little foretaste of that future here on earth. And hell is a future reality and the devil can bring it and say, I want you to experience a little foretaste, a little glimpse of what it's going to be like here on earth. And we experience it every single day. We don't experience hell in its fullness, but we have glimpses. We have foretastes of it. We see it in the dog-eat-dogginess of our existence, where every man and every woman is looking out for him or herself. We see and experience hell when we treat people like objects to be used and not subjects to be loved. We see and we experience hell every time we're looking over our shoulder and distrusting everybody. That's hell. Not in its fullness, but it's a little glimpse. It's a little foretaste of it. It's when we hold on to our possessions so tightly because we're afraid that there's not enough to go around. You see, it's a fiery kind of life. A fiery kind of life that is painful and disintegrating and that leads to ash. And it is a dark kind of life that is full of snares and scares and that is robbed of all color. Robbed of all joy and is full of weeping and gnashing and teeth. It's not that different from what a lot of life looks like here on planet Earth. We get glimpses and foretastes of it plenty, but it is that forever. Hell is real. Jesus talks about it a lot, more than anyone else in the Bible. He talks about it a lot because he doesn't want you to experience it. You'll know Penn Jillette. He's the comedian musician from Penn and Teller. He's an atheist, but he said this. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. You see, Jesus isn't afraid of the awkward conversation. He's not afraid to go there. He's not afraid to tackle you. Hell is for real. But y'all, you don't have to go there. You simply need to wash your robe, wash your life in the blood of the Lamb. I put it in your handout, like, heaven is not for good people. 
Heaven is for washed people. I, very few of you have remember uh, or got to meet my dog, Coulter. Uh, maybe if you've been to my house, you've met my dog, Fellow, but my dog, Coulter, uh, he, he passed away uh, two years ago. Uh, but this dog, Coulter, loved to snuggle. Just, we would have like small groups in our house. Remember when we could do that, you know, before coronavirus? We would have small groups in our house or we'd have, you know, big, you know, dinners at our house. And Coulter would always be like on the couch. If there was people on the couch, he would want to be right there. If, if we were in our bed, he would want to be like in the middle between Meg and I. He just loved to snuggle. And we loved Coulter. We didn't mind it all that much. In fact, we're like, we, we really liked it. Um, the problem is that sometimes Coulter would leave the house. It's like he ran away from home and he would find some mud to roll in or he would find maybe a dead squirrel and he would roll in it and he would come back with his tail wagging, smelling awful. Now we still loved Coulter the same, like our feelings toward him hadn't changed any, but we couldn't be near him anymore. Not like we used to be, right? If he wanted to get back on the couch, if he wanted to get back in our bed between Megan and me, he had to be cleansed. And here's the thing, y'all, that is something Coulter could not do himself. There is no way my dog had the ability to, to, to do this on his own, to get himself back in our good graces that way, to, to, to regain access to what he had lost. The only way that he could do that is if he allowed someone to wash him. And you all, this is analogous to our experience because God loves you. And you have run away from home and you have rolled in the mud, you've rolled in the metaphorical squirrel, but God still loves you. But you can't, you can't be near him in the same way that you used to, right? That thing has made a separation between you and him. If you want to get back in, you, you can't, you're going to have to allow him to wash you. You can't take that away. Someone else has got to do that for you. Will you allow him to wash you? Will you, wa- will you take your robes and wash them in the blood of the lamb? Here's what you can look forward to if and when you do. You can stand on the day of judgment. You will live in harmony with God forever. Back on the couch, back on the bed, forever. You will live in harmony with all kinds of people from all around the globe forever. You will live in harmony with creation forever. You will not hunger anymore. You will never feel lack or unfulfilled. I hear Hamilton, I will never be satisfied. No, you will be satisfied forever. You will not thirst. You will not suffer heat or affliction. There will be nothing to harm you anymore. God will forever be your shepherd and security. And most tenderly, most tenderly, he will personally wipe every tear from your eyes. The end of this story is actually a new beginning. It's a new beginning called the new heavens and the new earth. 
And C.S. Lewis puts it this way at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Yo, what is the practical relevance of all of this? Like, what difference does knowing the end of the story actually make? I firmly believe that what we believe about the future informs how we live today. And this is not just true of the Christian. This is true of everyone, regardless of your beliefs. Think about it. If you think that there is no God, that there's no heaven, there's no hell, that there is no afterlife, no judgment day, then in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make a difference if you live like Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa. In the grand scheme of things, it makes no difference. They're in the same place. And if this is true, you have very little incentive to actually move towards suffering. And you have every reason to avoid it. If there is no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, do whatever makes you feel good. Why not? Insulate yourself from the world. Live a pretty selfish life or very selfish life. Why not? If you believe that there is a God and there is hell, but you had better be perfect to get into heaven, you're going to live a very anxious life. You're going to live a life filled with guilt and shame. And you're going to live a life angry at God because you see him as mean and as a merciless judge. But if you believe that there is a God who loves you, who sent his son to save you, not because you were great, but because you weren't great, because you needed help, because you needed grace, and who dealt with your sin on the cross so that he could finish sin without finishing you, and who's going to come back someday and finish what he started? Well, friends, these are are truths that will change you. They're not just going to change what you think about the future. They're going to change you present day. They're going to change the way you feel about God today. They're going to start to change the way you feel about yourself today. Change what you work for and why. You'll start to do good, but you're no longer going to be motivated by fear or pride or having to prove yourself. But instead, you're going to act simply out of love and thanksgiving. And you will pursue goodness and beauty and truth and justice, not because you need to prove your worth, but because these are things that God cares about and things that will last forever. This future vision changes not just what you work for and why, but even how you go about your work. Because you're not going to fight fire with fire. You're not going to drive out hate with hate. You're not going to join the cancel culture or or spew slander about those who disagree with you. But instead, you're going to go about this work with humility and courage and hope and love. What we believe about the future informs how we live today. I started tonight's talk with an analogy that we are living between D-Day and V-E Day. But let me just conclude tonight with one other. My daughter, Willa, is now uh, in a play um, of Velveteen Rabbit. Uh, 
if you all know the story, classic tale, they're, they're doing a, a rendition of it at the Very Merry Theater. She came home the other day. She's going to be, I think, the teddy bear and a different rabbit. Those are her roles. She came home uh, the other day with a, a script. It's about five pages long. I want you to imagine that one day, Willa goes to the Very Merry Theater with her five-page script, but page four, like, slips out of the binder. You all with me? Okay. She gets to the rehearsal, and she's working through the pages of the script. She can't read yet, but people are working her way through the pages, right? Page one. Page two, page three, you're meeting the characters, you're getting a sense of the story, you're getting a sense of the conflict, right? Some of the plot, what the story is about. But then you turn the page and all of a sudden you're on page five. It's the end of the story. And you look around, well, where's page four? How do we get from page three to page five? How do we get from here to here? What would you do? Might you be able to figure things out? Do you think you could improvise, right, what was on page four without actually seeing it? If you knew one, two, and three, and you knew five, could you figure out what comes in between? I think the Christian life is a lot like that. We are living in this in-between time, sort of between pages three and pages five. Or if you want to think of it, act three and act five. Right? God made a good world. We broke it. And God sent his son to save it. Acts 1, Act 2, Act 3. And we know, page 5, he's going to come again. And he's going to make everything wrong, right. We are, our lives are, written on this page 4. As we study the story, as we learn what's come before, as we learn what's coming at the end, As we learn our lines, we can begin to live out. We can begin to make these connections between that story of Jesus and the story of his return. And we can learn how to improvise. We can find our lines and we can find our place in the great story. Let's pray.